0: Test one, two, one, two. Great. Greetings from GQ um, and from our church, Covenant Grace, and a massive congratulations to you, Redeemer. Uh, What a a stunning name, uh, full of potential and purpose and value and direction, and I love it. It's huge. It's massive. It's broad, and it reminds us of our glorious and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. What an amazing name. So well done to you guys. And um, it's my joy and privilege to be with you today on this significant moment. I want to speak to us from John chapter 17, which is uh, commonly known as the high priestly prayer. um, Or I like to refer to it as the real Lord's prayer, the real Lord's prayer. And the reason I say that is because the Matthew 6 Lord's prayer that we know, you know, our Father who art in heaven, we refer to that as the Lord's prayer. Actually, the Lord Jesus couldn't pray that prayer. Do you know why? Because he can't pray, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me because Christ was not a sinner. And so Jesus could not pray the disciples' prayer. That was the disciples' prayer. The Lord taught the disciples how to pray. But this is the real Lord's prayer. John 17 is the very prayer of Jesus, the very words of Jesus speaking to his father. And Jesus has transitioned in this particular chapter from the upper room where he's been teaching the disciples to what we could call an inner room where he's conversing with his father. And so J.C. Ryle, the great Liverpool uh, uh, bishop, said this. He said, this is the most wonderful prayer that was ever prayed on earth. The most wonderful prayer that was ever prayed on earth. And what we have the opportunity and privilege of this morning is that, listen to me, we get to eavesdrop. We get to eavesdrop on a conversation between two members of the Trinity. We have the privilege of listening in on the most precious prayer ever prayed on earth, between the Father and the Son, between the Son speaking to the Father. John Calvin, the great mighty reformer, said this. He said, in John 17, we see the soul of Jesus Christ. We see the soul of Jesus Christ. And the reason he said that is because prayer, in many ways, is the language of desire. It's the language of desire. We get to hear what's on Jesus' heart. Now, we know, we hear this sometimes with our, with our young children. We, we get to see the language of desire played out in the prayers of children. Because children pray their desires freely, Right? They pray their desires very freely. They pray for grannies and grandpas, and they pray for their dogs, and they pray for their sore toes, and they pray for lost toys. And we may even hear things like this. I'm just picking on two. There's loads. You can Google it. It's fun. Uh, Dear God, please forgive me for hiding my sister's favorite doll. And please don't tell her where it is. (laughs) Amen. Or this one. Dear God, I need you to make my mom not allergic to cats. Because I really want a cat, and I don't want to ask her to move out. (laughs) The language of desire, praying freely. So the question then is, what is on Jesus' heart? As we look at John 17, what is on his heart? And here's the big idea. The big idea of what's on Jesus' heart is his disciples. It's his disciples. It's his immediate disciples You'll see in the prayer, he speaks about those that the Father has given him as a reference to the immediate disciples. But also he's praying for all future disciples. So, so just let's log this right here, right now, that, that what Jesus is praying for is all Christians throughout history, past, present, and future. He's praying for you and he's praying for me. So I'm going to ask my dear wife, she's going to come and read The chapter, we're going to read the whole chapter, chapter 17. It's not that long. It's 26 verses. But hear this. We are eavesdropping, right? Can you join me? Let's eavesdrop in a conversation between the Father and the Son. Thanks, friends.
1: Morning, Redeemer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I have come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them.
0: Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. The most amazing prayer that was ever prayed on earth, and part of the amazing reality of this prayer, is that when Jesus prays, he prays according to his Father's will. Jesus had earlier said, hey, when you pray, pray in my name. And if you pray according to my will and in my name, you will have what you ask. And there is no doubt in my mind that Jesus is praying according to the Father's will, which means this, that his prayer will be answered. There's no two ways about it. His prayer will be answered. And so he's praying for three big things that we're going to look at this morning. He's praying for salvation. He's praying for sanctification. And he's praying for glorification. That we, his people, would be saved, sanctified, and glorified. So let's look at them briefly. First one is he's praying for salvation. We see this interesting phrase in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, upper room discourse, he lifted his eyes to heaven. He shifts his gaze from earth to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Now, if you think back to John chapter 2, remember the story of the water turned into wine. And Mary's, Mary comes to Jesus, the, the mother of Jesus, and she says, what are you going to do? We've run out of wine. And, and he responds and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so John, throughout his gospel, uses this phrase, the hour, as a reference to the display of his glory. And interestingly, what Jesus is saying here is now the hour has come. The hour has arrived. And what is the hour? Throughout John's gospel, it is a reference to the crucifixion. It is a reference to the hour of suffering that Christ will endure On our behalf. But notice what he says. He says the hour has come. The most grueling. The most brutal suffering. That the glorious son of God will ever experience. But then he says glorify your son. That the son may glorify you. We wouldn't normally put those two things together. Suffering and glory. Right? But Jesus does. Jesus sees the hour of his suffering. As the uh, producing glory. That, that the Son will be glorified and that the Father will be glorified. And, and so we need to just think this through a little bit. What is it that will bring this glory about? And there's no doubt it's the cross work, right? The cross work will result in glory. And we're going to think through that a little bit. But then he goes on and he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And I'm thinking, okay, the hour has come, I'm going to the cross, but now he's speaking past tense, and he says, I've already done the work. I've already accomplished the work. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished. Jesus is praying here like an obedient son to a father who gave him a mission. Mission accomplished, Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, it's now done. And like any good Christian, you must be thinking, but you haven't been to the cross yet. How can you say it's already done? And that's because there is a twofold work. As the obedient son of God, there's a twofold work. When it comes to your and my salvation, there is a critical twofold work that takes place. There is a before the cross work and there is a cross work. And we need to understand this because Jesus is making a big point out of this. He's saying, listen, I have accomplished the work that you've given me to do. So firstly, the reason for the before the work, the before the work is that Jesus is the perfectly obedient son, that he fulfills the demands of the law of God perfectly on our behalf. And the reason for this is because humanity has a twofold problem. And the twofold problem of all humanity is that we are all guilty of sin. And because we are guilty of sin, God's justice demands that sin must be punished. And this is why Jesus must go to the cross, right? He must go to the cross to pay for our sins. Now, this is going to sound scandalous. But that's not enough. To just pay for our sins, is not enough. We need more than forgiveness of sin. We need more than forgiveness of sin. Yes, we need to be forgiven of our sins, but let me say this loud and clear. You need a whole lot more than just to have your sins forgiven. If you want to enter into heaven, if you want to go into glory, let me say this again more more controversially, heaven must be earned. Probably never heard that from this stage before, and that's okay. Let me clarify it's not you earning it, it's Jesus earning it for you. Yes, you need forgiveness of sins, yes, you desperately need Jesus to die in your place for your sins, but you also need perfect righteousness. It's not enough just to have your sins forgiven. Without holiness, no one sees God. So you need a double cure for the double dilemma. The double dilemma is you need forgiveness of sins, but you also need perfect righteousness. And that's what Jesus is referencing. I have finished the work. I have finished the work of perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. Let me ask you, have you been perfectly, personally, and perpetually obedient all your life? if you say yes, you're lying. (laughs) Personally, lying. But Jesus, every minute of every hour of every day, was personally and perpetually and perfectly obedient to his Father. What was he doing that for? Just to be a good example? No, he was earning heaven for us. So that my sins could be forgiven at the cross, but that in his perfect life, he's storing up righteousness so that it could be credited to my account. And he gives it to us freely when we put our faith and trust in Christ. And so Jesus earns heaven for us through his perfect obedience, through his spotless life. And then he goes to the cross. Notice that Jesus is not just praying for salvation, but he's going to do it. He's going to act it out. He doesn't just pray for things. He acts them out. And then he goes on and he says this in verses 2 and 3. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Jesus has universal authority. He is sovereign over all. Yet his salvation is particular. Yeah." To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Salvation is not universal. Yes, Jesus has universal authority over all flesh. But his redemption is particular to those whom the Father has given him. And Jesus lays down his life for the sheep, for the church. And he says, he calls this eternal life. This is eternal life. This is salvation. It's eternal life because he's earned heaven for us. That you know, that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus is the one who opens that door that we might know the Father. That we might love the Father. Now it's interesting in this chapter, he says the words give, given, gave at least a dozen times throughout the passage. And the reference is no doubt that that this is a particular people that Jesus is giving himself up for. An innumerable number of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That Jesus will save a people. This isn't potential salvation. This is accomplished. He's earned it in his life. And he's going to pay for it in his death. And there is no two ways about it they are going to be saved. Verse 20 says, I do not ask for these only, the 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Throughout history, here we are this morning, we are testimony, we are an answer to prayer. You and I are answers to this prayer. We have come to faith through the faithful preaching of the New Testament, which is the word of the apostles. So the first point is this is not some general prayer. This is a specific prayer, and he's praying for past, present, and future believers throughout all of redemptive history. And the most amazing thing is that when Jesus prayed this, most of the believers had not yet lived, but they were already on his heart. And so I want to remind you that you were on the Father's heart long before you even thought of Christ long before you were born long before you even considered the gospel you were on the heart of the father we know this cuz he loved us first the second thing he prays for is sanctification it's a big theme in this prayer and so if we just go to verse 15 and 17 he says this i do not ask that you take them out of the world and jesus is aware of his impending death and resurrection he's going to leave He's going to leave, but he, he knows that they're going to stay, right? He's already given them a sense of hope because he's going to send the Holy Spirit, chapter 15, 14, and 16. But then he says, but, but keep them from the evil one, right? It's going to be tough in the world. There's going to be the presence of evil in the world. He puts those two things together. They're going to be in the world, and so too will there be evil in the world. But, but he's praying. He's going to say, keep them, keep them. Verse 16, they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Why? Because he's redeemed them. Amen? He's redeemed them. So they don't belong to the world, but he's left them in the world. So here's what he's praying. Verse 17 Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is just a simple word meaning set apart. Set apart. In the world, but set apart. So let me ask you this. If you, sometimes as Christians, we feel like, I just feel so different to my non-Christian friends. You ever feel like that? Hallelujah. Right? That's how it's meant to be. You're meant to be set apart. Now, you're not meant to be isolated from your Christian friends because we're meant to be salt and light, which is why Jesus says, I'm not taking them out of the world. That's pointless. He wants us to be in the world. Agents of change, salt and light in the community, but we are to be classically in the world, but not of the world. We are to be more like Christ. And sanctification, Jesus knows, is a lifelong process. It's not instantaneous. It doesn't happen all at once. And so Jesus knows that there's going to be a process of change, that people change slowly, that people take time to change. Yes, there can be moments of acceleration, and praise God for that. But generally, it is a process. And says So Jesus says, here's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen through truth, that we are a people of the truth. We're a people of the word of God because truth is what purifies the church. And so there are two specifics that Jesus, I think, focuses on. He wants the church to be purified, to become more like Jesus, right? This isn't just holiness for holiness sake so that we can look better than other people. No, it's, it's really about becoming more and more like Jesus. So it's about purify, being purified towards Christ-likeness, but also there's this tone here of unified, purified and unified. So he goes on in verse 22. He says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. This is the goal. One of the great goals of sanctification is not just purity, but also unity with a missional outlet. Let me unpack that. This text, right, this idea of that we may be one or maybe perfectly one, really is not about superficial unity. This is not a verse saying that there should only be one church in every city. No, that's not what we see here. Nor is it a verse saying that there should be no denominations or no networks. That's not what it's talking about. This is not the unity it's describing. Or even worse, in some contexts, people say, well, you know, let's dumb down doctrine so that we can find a base of unity. Let's set aside truth so that we can be one. That's not what this is describing. In fact, that would be defeating the object because he says, sanctify them in the truth. Don't set aside the truth in order to find this. No, no. Fight for truth. So, what is this oneness? Well, it's an internal oneness, firstly. It's an internal oneness. It's a it's a oneness of union with Christ. Let me just speak to this a little bit, right? This isn't an emotional oneness. We're gathered here today, and there's a great sense of unity. But what is it that unifies us? Is it the new graphics? Is it the new design? Is it that we all went to the same school, or we all have the same interests, or we all read the same books? No. When I look across this room, I see different ages. I see different backgrounds. I see different cultures. I see different races. And I want to say to you, that is beautiful because it's part of God's design. Diversity is powerful. Diversity is not an undermining of unity. It's the underpinning of unity. Because what unifies us is not common interests, but a common savior. What unifies us, and that's exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, at the end of the service, yes, we're going to eat together, we're going to enjoy fellowship together, but we're not going to walk around holding hands, singing kumbaya to try and strengthen our unity, right? Maybe at youth. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Not there either. When Jesus prays and he says, may be one in this prayer in verse 20, 22, may be one and even stronger, he says, may become perfectly one. It's interesting because in the Greek, this is a perfect passive participle. Now, you don't need to remember that. But what it means is this is not something we do. It's something that God's going to do. That, that, that through Christ, he's going to unite a people who are so diverse, and in that culture, Jew and Greek were at odds with one another. But powerfully, God's going to do something through the redemptive work of Christ that will break all those barriers between the races, between the cultures, and unite them together, not around a common sport or a common endeavor or common interest, but around a common Savior, because Christ unites us. It's Christ who unites us. Notice in verse 22, he says that they may be one, and then he describes it, even as we are one. In other words, that's the analogy. The analogy is not superficial unity. The analogy is the unity that exists between the Godhead. Like we are one. In other words, he's talking about union to Christ. And so when it comes to superficial matters, secondary issues, I mean, for example, let me give you some examples. And and these were real examples. Again, you don't have to go too far to find these. Um, Because the outworking of this unity is where the challenge really lies. Right? We are unified because of Jesus. But now we need to live it out. Right? And the living out of it is the challenge. One church, look at this, one church was fighting for years over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard these are true these are true accounts another church was involved in a long protracted battle about the presence of a clock in the back of the hall true story another church was fighting over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer finally another church split because of the decision to use gluten-free communion bread. And we haven't even spoken about COVID yet, or politics, or worship wars. So what are we to do? Are we to dumb down truth? No. Sanctify them in the truth, purify them, unite them because of truth. What are we to do? Well, we're to look at the Trinity. Jesus says, may they be one as we are one. And in the Trinity, what do we see? We see unity and diversity. Difference can be beautiful. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel. What we see here this morning is the gospel on display. What Christ has done for us is to bring together a motley bunch, right? From all sorts of backgrounds and cultures. And let's not play down our backgrounds. Let's let's not say Things like, you know, color doesn't matter. No, it does matter. It's beautiful. I know what we're trying to say. We're trying to unify around what's important, but, but, but distinctness matters. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. They are distinct three persons, but they are perfectly united. So let's not blur the distinctions. Let's honor the distinctions and be unified. Thirdly and lastly, Jesus prays for glorification. He says in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. The ultimate goal is that we would be with Christ, that, that, the, that the walking by faith will one day end and we will walk by sight, that we will gaze upon Jesus. And look what he says, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of, Of the world. And you know what he's he's talking about? Yeah, he he speaks about it in verse 3, I think it was, or verse 4. He says, Restore me to the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, he's anticipating resurrection. He's going to go to the hour of his death, but he's already anticipating and praying, Lord, restore me to the glory that I had with you before the world even existed. But there's going to be one big difference. He's no longer going to be the pre-incarnate Christ. He's going to be the incarnate Christ. And that's why he says, now they're going to see my glory. Restore them. May they be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. His resurrected body. The resurrected glory. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the question is, well, who's going to see his glory? Who's going to see the glory of Jesus? on that day? And the answer is simple. The disciples, the followers of Jesus throughout all redemptive history, they will see his glory. Not the world, but those that the Father has given him. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for those you have given me. So if you're trusting in Jesus here this morning, if your faith is in Jesus, you need to know that you've been given by the Father to the Son. That you've been loved. This, This is remarkable. Jesus didn't start praying for you after you got saved. He was praying for you long before you even thought about Him. And then, secondly, it's unthinkable then. If you've been given by the Father to the Son as a gift because of the reward of His obedience... It is unthinkable then that Jesus would lose any of those that were given to him. No, they're going to see him and he's, he's praying for it. It's unthinkable. It's, it's kind of like Jesus coming to the father at the end and saying, thanks for giving me all these people. But sadly, I lost a few along the way. I try to hold on to them, but they kind of got out of my grip. That's unthinkable. How is it that they will persevere? They will persevere because the father will keep them. Verse 11 and 12, Father, keep them in your name, that that which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them. I have guarded them. And this doesn't mean that Christians never stumble or make mistakes. We've been in pastoral ministry long enough to know Christians make big mistakes. And Christians do stumble and fall. But Here's the good news. Jesus has prayed for us. He's prayed for us. So that when we stumble and when we fall, we return. We return to the Father. Just like he prayed for Peter. He said, I prayed for you, Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, I've prayed for you, and if you return. He says, no, when you return. It's a certainty. I've prayed for you, and I know you're going to return. And I want to tell you today, if Jesus has prayed for you, if you're looking to Christ as your Savior, He has prayed for you. And even in your worst days, the promise over you is, when you return, strengthen your brothers. And so I want to end with this big picture Of Christ having prayed for the church. Prayed for the purity of the church. Prayed for the unity of the church. Prayed for the salvation of the church. Prayed that the church would persevere and make it to the end. But Jesus not only prayed then. Jesus is still praying today. He's still praying for us. He's praying for us right now. He's praying for you right now. Hebrews 7 says that he always lives to intercede for us. He's the resurrected Lord, and He is praying for us. I want to ask you, how does that make you feel? Jesus is praying for you. Maybe this quote will help, and I'm ending, ending with this. Robert Murray McShane says, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. I know you can't see it on the screens, but let me me read it again. Listen carefully. If you could hear Christ praying for you in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And so, Redeemer Church. Jesus has prayed that you would be saved, that you would be sanctified, that you would be glorified. And if God has prayed for us, who shall be against us? Amen. If God has prayed for us, who will be against us? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning on this significant day. And we pray that your grace would spill out now to every person, every family, every individual. Thank you for the diversity we see in this room. We pray that it would grow. Thank you that unity is not bent on sameness. Thank you, Lord, that you have prayed for true unity that exists in the Godhead that we get to reflect in the body. And I pray for this body of believers, Lord, that you would save them, that you would sanctify them, and that you would glorify them, that you would keep them, Lord, Thank you for this new chapter, this new season. And I ask that you would pour out your spirit and accelerate the mission of this church. Lord, that they would continue to see people saved and sanctified and persevering in the faith. Thank you, Jesus, that you are still praying for us. And so I pray that you would embolden us, that you would give us a sense of courage for the mission. That if you were praying right next door, and we would hear you. We would be so bold, but we thank you right now. That distance makes no difference. We know you are praying for us. Strengthen us, we pray, for this mission. Thank you that you've left us in this world. Thank you, Lord, that we are called to be in the world. Thank you, Lord, that you have placed us here for a reason. And I pray that you would use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.